Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome back to the Hello, Old Sports podcast here on the Sports History Network. Football season is in full effect, and so today we are going to be returning to an NFL topic, specifically a topic related to our beloved New York Giants. I'm Dan Newman, and I am joined, as always, uh, by my Hello Old Sports partner, Andrew Newman. How are you today? I'm doing well, Dan. Um, I think this might be our shortest episode ever um, as we are recording this. It's a couple of days after the Giants first game of the season uh, against the Broncos, and I would have a hard time imagining you're probably going to be on the same page as me with this. Um, All-time Giants, hard to improve on the 22 <laughs> starters we saw on Sunday. So I imagine <laughs> we just would roll out with the uh, the starting lineup of the 2021 Giants at the beginning of the season and call it an episode. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, tuning. No, um, unlikely any current Giants will be on this list. Yeah, I would say that is unlikely. And this probably won't let won't air until late September, early October. So hopefully, hopefully, well, hopefully it will be dated in a good way by the time this airs. But I highly doubt it. Andrew's making a face and he seems to disagree and or seems to agree with my doubts. And I am actually headed out to see the Giants uh, against Washington a mere two nights from now. So hopefully that goes okay. And again, by the time this airs, we'll we'll know how it went and we'll know how the Giants are doing. So what today's episode is going to be all about is sort of like we've done in the past for the Yankees and for the National League New York baseball teams and similar to some other things we've done with Mount Rushmore's and that type of thing where we're returning to our list series here on hello old sports and it's going to be an all-time new york giants football team where we select 11 offensive players 11 defensive players and some special teams and maybe one or two other sort of bonus add-ons not a full roster but just enough to sort of give you an idea of who we think are the greatest ever we'd like to again thank you for listening to us on whatever your podcast listening app or method of choice may be We'd like to encourage you to please rate us if you listen to us on iTunes. Give us a nice five-star rating. Leave us a review. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. And then if you want to get in touch with us, you can also find us on Facebook at Hello World Sports Podcast. You can email the show at Sports at gmail.com. And as always, we also encourage you to check out some of the great shows, the great other shows on the Sports History Network at sportshistorynetwork.com. And we are going to be, Andrew and I will uh, have recently guest hosted. We're actually recording it uh, tonight and likely will air before this airs, where we talk about one of the, uh, some of the greatest players to wear the number 89 uh, with Darren Hayes on his pigskin dispatch 
podcast. We've done a number of episodes with Darren. I think we did number 58. We did number 64. I think way back when we did number 19. I know I remember we've done one or two others that aren't immediately coming to mind. So I think this is the last one we'll be doing, but we did 51. We did 51. That was another one. Yeah. So I think before Andrew was doing it with me, before he was doing that with me, he's always been doing this show with me. Um, I, I did number four, I think, with Darren way back when. And so it's been a lot of fun. I think this will probably be the last one that we do because there's just not that many numbers left, but it's been something that's been a lot of fun. So check out Darren and his Pigskin Dispatch podcast, as well as some of the other great shows that they have there on the Sports History Network. And as I mentioned, we'll be recording that uh, the same night that we're recording this. So lots of lots of football for Andrew and I tonight. And there may be a little bit of crossover between this list and that list. We'll You'll have to listen to both to find out. Andrew, uh, how are you doing today? You asked me that already, and I said I was doing good. Um, well, has it changed since my monologue? No, it's still doing all right. The Yankees start in about five minutes, so then it will probably change. But at the moment, no, I'm doing good. Um, you know, this has always been something that I think growing up as a, as a Giants fan and obviously with a bent towards sports history that, you know, tinkered around with being, you know, as I don't even want to say the kid, but sort of as an older adult and or you know an older teenager and then you know it, it's always been something that i've kind of played around with but this is definitely the most um thought and comprehensive nature that i put into a list like this an all-time giants team you know trying to respect the various eras including the current era i don't mean current as in the last few years but current as in you know the 21st century and not it's less of a problem with the Giants than it might be with some other teams, but like not just skewed to things from way back when. Unfortunately, you know, the Giants had some really good teams in the 20s and 30s and even the 40s. Pre-World War II football is tough to compare. You know, I have some guys, but it just it's it's hard. So, you know, trying to get as many guys from those 50s and 60s teams, along with the Parcells era teams, the current teams, and then a few sort of intermediate guys who maybe were in teams that weren't as good. So it was challenging, but um, I'm interested to see how different our, our teams are. And I think the other thing that we should mention is that this is definitely an I don't want to spoil anything for anybody who wants to listen to the show in the future, but Andrew and I are probably unlikely to do this for hockey at any point, but we've done baseball for the Yankees and for the, the national league, New York teams. We did a version of this for basketball where we just did an all time starting five for all 30 NBA franchises. Football is the hardest because it's got a longer history than basketball, but more players it's harder to quantify players across the eras and compare them to each other. And we, we, we mentioned Darren and his pigskin dispatch a few minutes ago. We've run into that a little bit with some of our guest hosting on his podcast, where really anything prior to the seventies, you don't really have any stats for defensive players. And even in the modern day, that's really, it's, it's very hard to quantify an offensive lineman. There's some stats out there, but it's they're, they're hard to understand. and They don't go back very far. So for off for quarterbacks, you have decent enough stats going back to the forties, but for linemen, even through the, the 2020s, you have to go mostly based on what experts have said and what you've observed yourself as a, you know, an educated or semi-educated football fan. So 
football is a tough one to do for all of those reasons. And then it's also just tough. And I, this was maybe reading more into it, but it's like, okay, I'm thinking about defense. Well, the giants forget about even the the fifties and prior go back the last 40 or 50 years. The giants have had dominant defenses at two different points. One where they ran a three, four, one where they ran a four, three, you know, defensive end in a three, four is a very different thing than a defensive end in a four, three. So for a middle linebacker, very different than an inside linebacker. For a minute, I was trying to go, oh, well, I'm, but I I factored that in a little, but I tried not to hammer it too, too much and end up, you know, it's like the example I was using. People say, oh, you got to name your all-time Yankee team. And then they make you choose a left fielder instead of just three outfielders. So either Joe DiMaggio or Mickey Mantle gets left off the team so you can put Dave Winfield there. That's being overly particular. But yeah. You also don't want to just say, oh, you can have nine shortstops. You know what I mean? So you got to, even within sort of a, a hypothetical, theoretical discussion, you got to decide how much you want to ground this in being an actual team. Yeah. And you want to, and I guess you can also, if you're looking at whether it's going to be an actual team or not, maybe you can comfort yourself a bit with the idea that great players know how to adapt. So maybe if they're playing in a little bit of a different system defensively or offensively, they'll be ready to, they'll be able to adapt to whatever new system or new hypothetical era that it is they're playing under. Let's go ahead and get started. And I guess quarterback is probably the easiest and uh, best place to start. Yeah. Well, it's not the easiest place to start. It's definitely the best place to start. Uh, Makes the most sense. Uh, Mm -hmm. You have to go with Eli Manning. Um, Agreed. Even adjusting for era, he, the only one who would, I guess, if you're going to counter any kind of, if you're going to consider any kind of longevity, the only two guys who started even half the games he started are Phil Sims and Charlie Connerly. Um, Eli has more yards than the two of them combined. And I know it's a different era, but he almost doubles up Sims. Um, he, is almost twice as much in touchdowns as Sims. They both win two Super Bowls. Um, you know, the, the Phil Sims, how much credit he gets for 1990 is a story for another day. But even adjusting for a tougher era, Eli Manning won two Super Bowls, was the MVP of both Super Bowls, and won a Super Bowl with the lowest ranked rushing game, rushing offense in the league and nowhere near the kind of defense over the course of that time that Sims had. So that is true. And also you factor in Eli, like I think maybe you mentioned this was the MVP of both Super Bowls. He played from 04 when he, from the time he was named the starter in 04 to the time he kind of stepped away for Daniel Jones in 19, he missed only a handful of games. I think you could probably count the number of games he missed in one hand, just the one game. And that was that was the game where they benched him for Geno Smith, right? From when he became the starter, he did not miss a game due to injury. And only one in total when he when they benched him in what was that, 17? 17. And then in 19, he started the first two games. They benched him for Jones, and then he got to play two games late in the season when Jones got hurt. Yeah. So and whereas Sims throughout his career, both at the beginning and at the end missed a lot of time due to either injuries or benchings. So I think you do have to go with Sims. The only other, you mentioned Connerly. Go with Eli, you mean, right? Did I say, did I say go with Sims? No, I'm go. You have to go with Eli. Okay. 
And the only other one I thought mentioning was Y.A. Tittle because he is in the Hall of Fame. He did win an MVP with the Giants in 1963, but he only played four seasons with the Giants. Most of his career was spent with the 49ers. So even though he is a Hall of Famer and the only Giants quarterback ever to win league MVP, I think you still have to go with Eli. So I think we're, we're in agreement there. Eli Manning is our starting quarterback. All right. So how did you handle the backfield? I just went with two running backs. I didn't go with a running back. I didn't go with a halfback and a fullback necessarily, especially, you know, with, with how little fullbacks are used these days. I just went with two running backs. That's what I did too. I had considered going with a fullback in Alex Webster, who was great star running back of the fifties and sixties with the giants during all those years, they were going to the NFL championship game. He was the backfield mate of Frank Gifford for a lot of that time. And he was a fullback, but he was a fullback sort of like a Jim Taylor or a Jim Brown who ran the ball a lot himself. So I thought about going with that with Webster because he could be sort of both a carry the ball running back, but then also a fullback. But in the end, the two guys that I did choose end up ended up kind of beating him out. And so I ended up going with his backfield mate, Frank Gifford, who played some time as a wide receiver, but most of his Hall of Fame career was played as a halfback. And then my second was actually Tiki Barber. I, you know, maybe not the giant that I have the most love in my heart for based on some of his antics towards the end of his career and even after it ended, but. If you look at the numbers, all-time leading rusher, uh, all-time leader in rushing yards for the Giants, put up some really, really good seasons sort of in the early Coughlin years. So I had to go with Barber as well as uh, Frank Gifford. Yeah, there's really no debate on Barber. Um, He's by 3,000 yards, the leading running back in the franchise's history. And, you know, retired when he still had quality years left in him, which from a narrative standpoint, we can obviously talk about that on a different, at a different time, but um, you know, from, yeah, from like Oh four, Oh five, Oh six, Oh five, especially he was the best player on the team. He was one of the best backs in the league. Um, really versatile in once he got that fumbling thing under control, which you got to give Coughlin a lot of credit for, um, you know, was a really versatile back could also catch the ball out of the backfield really, really well. There were lots of times in those 05 and 06 teams, particularly, that he put them on their back on his back, no more famously than the last regular season game of his career, week 17 against Washington, where they needed to win to make the playoffs. And he ran for, I want to say, 200 plus yards in that game. They win, save Coughlin's job. And then that was the second, you know, a week later, his career was over. And I also went with Gifford. Gifford's the eighth leading rusher in franchise history. Um, He's also, I believe, the third leading receiver in franchise history in terms of receptions. He was also, what year was he the MVP? 1956, Gifford, the year the Giants won the Super Bowl? I believe believe that's right. The year they won the NFL championship. Um, So, you know, again, there's some guys whose numbers are slightly better than his, although not really when you factor in the receiving as well. But... um, Nobody above him on that list, Rodney Hampton, Joe Morrison, Brandon Jacobs, etc. Nobody was more dominant in their era. And you also have to remember, you're talking 14 game seasons there and maybe even 12 at the beginning of his career, but definitely, you know, 14 at the most his whole career. Yeah, they didn't go to 14 game season until 1960. So a lot of his glory years were during the 12 game season. 
yeah. real quick on Barber, and I'm, I should have mentioned at the outset, I've mentioned this author in his books before, Robert Cohen, who's done a number of these books in both base, baseball, basketball, and football. They're called the 50 Greatest Players series, and it's everything from the Giants to the Celtics to the Yankees to Patriots, Red Sox, Eagles. I have about a half a dozen of these books, and I, I highly recommend them. I'll put this one in the show notes. And he ranks Barber as the 15th best giant of all time. In the last regular season career game of his career, Barber carried the ball 23 times for 234 yards and three touchdowns during a 34-28 Giants win over Washington. Barber's TD runs covered 15, 55, and 55, 15, 55, and 50 yards with his 234 yards establishing a new single game rushing record for the franchise. Andrew, you probably remember we were at the previous giant game that season against new Orleans, right? It was new Orleans. It was on Christmas Eve. The giants had been six and two and they lost at that point. They'd lost five out of six going into that game. They were seven and seven. They lost that day. I think early in the game, they hit a big play to tumor or not tumor to, I believe Burris for a touchdown. And that was the only time they crossed the 50 yard line, the whole game. It was a brutal atmosphere. The crowd was going, was furious, and it looked like it was over. And then that Saturday night, they beat Washington and essentially mathematically clinched a playoff spot. It was one of those where the next day you needed, if like nine things went the other way, the next day they would have been eliminated. But um, yeah, he was he was a phenomenal player, and some of how it ended and it probably went too far 15 years on down the line like i said at some point maybe next year when it's the 15 year anniversary we'll have to do an episode on the 07 giants and the beginning of that will tiki barber will will factor in prominently in that but let's not lose sight of just how great a player he was for them you know we're talking about the early coughlin years the end of his career let's also remember he was the the leading you know rusher on another team that went to the super bowl yeah you know, that was the one year Ron Dane had any kind of an NFL career, but Barber was on that team. He was, you know, sort of the lead dog in the O2 team that made the playoffs. He had a really, really nice career. And the point I'm trying to make about that 06 game was that you figure the team was in a free fall. He had, I, we were at the game before, like I said, and he got booed during that game. If you remember, Tiki Barber got booed. It would have been really easy for him to mail it in in one respect or another for that last game uh, against Washington that sent them to the playoffs. Instead, he responded with one of, if not the greatest game of his career. So despite his antics before, during and after, he deserves credit for stepping up during that game and having the monster day that he did. Absolutely. And then, you know, if you take everything out of it, you look, he's all time leading rusher by a lot. And it's not like just with quarterbacks where, oh, you have to kind of adjust for the era. Guys have been putting up big rushing numbers for a long time. So I think no question about Barber. And, you know, there's a few other cases you could make. But I think especially if you're going to go with two halfbacks, you kind of need to go with a guy from an older era. And I think Gifford is clearly the guy there. And it's worth noting that Gifford was also the kind of the marquee star of the Giants, when when NFL football in the mid-1950s was first becoming a big thing in the American pop culture and football was starting to challenge baseball as the premier American sport, 
Gifford was this Madison Avenue matinee idol, the first football player who really was. And so he brought the Giants who were playing in New York City on par with the Yankees as far as the, you know, the New York conscience consciousness for those four or five years. So that's really important to note as well. Why don't we move on to wide receivers? What did you have for wide receivers? So I have a feeling there's going to be some divergence here. The first wide receiver, I have Imani Toomer. Um, do you have Toomer? I do have Toomer, all-time leading receiver in Giants history. Played with them forever. What was his rookie year? Like 94, 95? He was there 96 to 08. Okay, so thir- what's that, 13 years? 13 years, yeah. Uh, 190 games. Um, he is the leading rusher in yards. He's got 94, 97. The next closest guy has 5,400 and change. 54 receiving touchdowns, which is the all-time lead for the Giants. Um, you know, got that Super Bowl ring at the end of his career and was still a very important player on that 07 team. Um, was the lead receiver for the Giants really from... I don't know if you want to say 98, 99, whenever Chris Calloway left all the way through until they brought Plaxico Burris in in 2005. Um, he had some really good years with um, with Kerry Collins in 2002, especially. Yeah. The 2002 Giants went into the season with with Amani Toomer and Ike Hilliard as their starting receivers. Ike Hilliard got hit on a dirty hit by Brian Dawkins in a Monday night football game in week seven and missed the rest of the season. The only dirty hit of Brian Dawkins' career. And then the next two guys also went down. Ron Dixon went down, and then whoever their fourth receiver that year is went down as well. And they were down the whole rest of the year. Their fifth receiver was a guy named Daryl Jones, who they never threw the ball to. They <laughs> did not. He got like four catches the whole year. Basically, the whole team was Toomer and Shockey was their whole passing game, and Barber out of the backfield. And that was like one of his best seasons in 2002. I'll pull up his numbers there. But, um, you know... He was a guy that I didn't really think about it until the parade when the, the receivers like float was going down the street in 07. And I'm like, oh, I'm really thrilled he got a ring because it was a lot of focus on Strahan getting a ring at the end of his career. We all kind of thought he would retire and, you know, uh, Eli and, and plenty of guys. But all of a sudden I was just like, Amani uh, Toomer's been here forever, too, when he just got a Super Bowl ring as well. So um, I remember yeah. when he first came into the league, even in the preseason that first year, his he returned a couple of kick returns or punt returns for touchdowns. And he was like this this sort of phenomenon among Giants fans that off that training camp and then kind of settled into his role on the team later on. But he, he burst onto the scene as a special teams player. So I'm going to just, yeah, I pulled up this O2 team, by the way, and I'm just trying to get the yards receiving for the O2 team. This was the best year of his career. He had 1,343 receiving yards in 2002 and eight touchdowns. The next closest guy was Shockey with just under 900. And then you have to go all the way down to Hilliard, who, like I said, didn't play after October. Dixon, Tim, like that guy, Daryl Jones, started six games for them that year. And he had eight catches and he started six games for them. So like, you know, that was the best year of his career, even though, you know, obviously not the most successful year. He played in the 2000 Super Bowl, had a couple of big plays in that NFC championship game that year. If I remember correctly, definitely scored one of the first couple of touchdowns, I think. 
So where are we going next? Who's our second receiver? I went off the board a little bit here. I went with Del Schaffner. And the reason I went with Del Schaffner, you know, he was not on the team for very long. He was only on the team. Well, he was on the team, what, 61 to 67. But from 1961 to 1963, he was a first-team All-Pro, was arguably the best receiver in football those years. And when you adjust for inflation in the passing game and, uh, you know, the fact that guys were just not putting up those kind of numbers back then, I mean, he had three straight years of over 1,100 receiving yards in the early 60s. And again, in 14 games, double-digit touchdowns two of those three years. I went with him. Now, I'm willing I'm, – I'm going with him on the strength of three seasons, so I'm willing to – there is a very clear argument for somebody who equally at a slightly longer and better numbers with the Giants as a receiver, but for to kind of – go different eras with receivers. I went with Schaffer. So I actually was very similar to you, but I went with Kyle wrote who was Schaffner's immediate predecessor as the lead receiver in the job with the giants. Schaffner was with the giants from 51 to 61. He and wrote were actually teammates for just the one year in 1961 and 61, I believe was also why Tittle's first year as the star as the full-time starter. Yeah. He started 13. Connerly was still around in 61, but 13, but 61 was sort of the passing of the torch from the 40 year old Connerly to the young up and coming 35 year old. Why Tittle giants had some old quarterbacks in those days. But as I mentioned before, Tittle had some really, really good passing years. And for the one year he had both Schaffner and wrote wrote four time pro bowler from 53 to 56 a part of the 56 championship team played in a bunch of other NFL title games. So I went with rote versus Schaffner. Give me the, give me the numbers. If you have them of Schaffner's best three years again. All right, let's get, it's really for the giants. It's only three years. Yeah. 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 More years, but he didn't break 300. His receiving yards. The last four years, he was on the team 323, 388, 19 and 146. But 61, 62, 63, 68 catches, <clears throat> 1,125 yards, 53 catches, 1,133, and 64 catches, 1,181. And the touchdowns are 11, 12, and 9. And let me see Rote here. Rote's highest touchdowns ever are 10. And Schaffner, five-time All-Pro, three times with the Giants. Yeah, I mean, Schaffner in his prime was a better receiver than Kyle wrote. We'd go wrote based on longevity. We'd go Schaffner based on peak. And I think the Giants were probably more of a passing team in the early 60s than they were in the late 50s. I think in the late 50s, it was more Gifford and Webster. And then when Tittle came around and Schaffner came in, it was much more of a, a wide open passing so yeah I'll, I'll i'll give you schaffner that that's fine yeah i think the longevity is one thing but i just i if you were talking about a few more like he barely gets outside of 60 and his most best best two years was last two years but you know i just think schaffner was at no point was kyle wrote 
a first team all pro receiver or end or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Well, Schaffner was. It's funny, too, because I, I thought we had talked about Schaffner before on this podcast, and then I'm looking and I, I see here he passed away in March of last year. So, yeah, we would have talked to him, talked about him, I should say, on our In Memoriam episode last year. Yep. Yeah, I remember that. Um, the only other uh, the guys. So obviously the, the, the two we talked about and Toomer, other guys who would need consideration. I thought about throwing Homer Jones in there just because. It was such an era of bereft of talent for that team. He was on the team 64 to 69, which those teams look like the doomsday, you know, look like the Bill Walsh 49ers compared to what happened the next five years after that. But, um, you know, not just not enough there. I mean, you know, there's the whole legacy with spiking the ball and stuff. So I, I thought about him. And then you have to at least consider Beckham. Mm hmm. Uh, only on the team five years already, you know, the number two receiver in Giants history behind Toomer, you know, he passed Gifford and Barber and Morrison and Joe, like it's never been a franchise that's had much of a passing team. Maybe, and maybe 10 years down the line, I'd be willing to say, yeah, he was only on the team five years, but four of those five years. Wow. What a, you know, what a run, but I'm just not willing to go there with, not even being bitter because I, I, the Giants shouldn't have traded him. It was dumb. It's it's done nothing to improve their fortunes. But I just a guy who like okay, he's going to be the one of the greatest players in the history of the franchise, and then he's gone that quickly. You know, again, maybe objectively, 10, 15 years down the line, I'd be willing to say, oh, he really belongs there. But I just couldn't go there yet, and especially when I'm not trying to just have, well, you know, trying to represent some of these eras here in different fashion. I think it's hard to have a guy be considered an all-time great of your team when he didn't play on them for all that long and he's still actively a player with another team. I think that's a tough hurdle to get over. Yeah, a fair point. Um, so we got one more uh, quote-unquote skill position player left, and that would be the tight end. Um, you mentioned before some overlap. I have a feeling I was actually going to wear my jersey tonight because it would fit both of these categories, but... I figured, A, it's an audio medium, and B, my jerseys are in a closet that I have to move things to get to, so I decided against it. The answer here has to be Mark Bavaro, does it not? I think if you're counting tight end as the traditional usage of the term, which is something that starts probably somewhere in the 50s, I think, yeah. I think the Giants had some other guys at end, like, Ray Flaherty in the 20s and 30s. If you really want to go back that far, you maybe could make a case for that or like Red Badrow, guys who were in the Hall of Fame and did a lot of blocking and a lot of pass catching. But I think if you sort of try and stick to the traditional definition of tight end, it, it can't be anybody but Bavaro. Shockey probably put up better numbers and maybe he's sort of the the head choice, but just for what Bavaro meant to the team and the two Super Bowl rings and just the kind of the the warrior that he was for six or seven years with the Giants in the 80s and 90s and how beloved he is by the fans, I would also go with Mark Bavaro. Yeah, and what you said, unfortunately, that sort of thing is a casualty of, like I said, I those ends were more like your modern-day offensive line. It's just... To me, that's a casualty of it being 
just too long ago. It's the same way it's hard to, you know, you can talk about baseball players from 1910. You really can't talk about baseball players from 1860 when you're doing all-time teams, you know? Like, I, I just, I have a hard time getting there with an end instead of a tight end. It was just such a different sport. Um, and I think to to sort of add on to what you were saying about Bavaro, you know, you look and I, I didn't realize he's still 18th all time in passing yardage for the Giants, which is kind of crazy when you think about he didn't play there that long. He was only on the team for six years and also was not primarily a pass catcher. But I think on top of that, you got to remember the style those giant teams played. He was also an excellent blocker. Yes. Uh, especially in, you know, in the run game, which was what the Giants wanted to do back then, which was, you know, basically run to the strong side of the field behind the tight end and have the tight end take either a defensive end or an outside linebacker and, you know, get room for Joe Morris or OJ Anderson or whoever it may be to get five yards. Um, in addition to being at times their best pass catcher, uh, which he definitely was. He sort of rookie year was 85 and the Zeke Moad had been the starting tight end in 84. And then he got hurt and missed all of 85. Bavaro was the starter. He 37 pass catch catches, 37 passes, 511 yards. And then 86 is the year where he really is an offensive threat. He has almost exactly 1000 yards receiving as 1001 yards, receiving 66 receptions, both of which, while I'm not looking right at it, both of which have to be the leading numbers for the Giants for that year. He has that famous game in 86 where he bowls over, carries seven or eight 49ers, including Ronnie Lott, for an extra 10 or 12 yards. So he was the heart of the Giants' offensive team during those years. And then he started to get injured and slow down. But even through his last year in 90, he's a major contributor to that team. And when we did our episode at the beginning of this year on Super Bowl 25, you see Bavaro caught three or four passes in that final drive when the Giants drove down to kick to have Matt Barr kick what ends up being the game winning field goal. So only six years with the team, spends some time injured. His his whole career is only nine seasons. So I think that there are people out there who you could probably try and make an argument for somebody else based on the fact that he he had a very short career, but Mark Bavaro is a guy who means a lot to Giants fans and absent anybody else who you can make a strong case for. I think you got to go with Bavaro. Yeah. And I mean, if you were talking about Shockey, Shockey was only on the team two, three, four. Shockey was only on the team six years as well, was also hurt for a good portion of a few of those years. He was hurt a lot in 03. He was definitely hurt, played most of the year in 07, but was hurt for the playoff run. Um, and then, like I said, I just. I can't go that far back and, and consider it the same position. Now, unfortunately, some of those guys just don't have comparable positions in the modern NFL, but, um, you know, even trying to take out any sort of nostalgia or poetry about what Pavaro represented, although it's hard, even taking that out, I think he's their best tight end in franchise history. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. And now we go up front. Um, and this is where, like you talked about at the top, we really do have to rely on some third-party sources. Luckily, a couple I saw SNY and a few other places have done their all-time teams. Um, 
end, you know, sort of look at guys who were all pros or pro bowlers and, you know, then sort of think about the eye tests a little bit, not super easy. I found one guy at each of the three positions, fairly easy to slot in. And then the second tackle and the second guard were a little tough. Um, should we get the easiest one out of the way first? Is that the center? Yeah, the center. Um, it's got to be Mel Hine. Uh, Only offensive lineman ever to win MVP award in 1938. And not just the MVP. He was a center who won the MVP. 1938, which was also a championship year for the Giants. Um, he was on the Giants from 1931 to 1945. Um, one, two, you know, two of the the Giants' second and third championships in 1934 and 38. Eight-time first-team All-Pro from 33 to 40. Who never misses a game because of injury. You look at him and you go like, oh, yeah, that you know looks like an average-built guy now. But um, clearly was the best offensive lineman in his era on any team. And, you know, all due respect to Bart Oates and Sean O'Hara – None of them were MVP candidates or even all pros. And I think if you're going to ding receivers and to a lesser extent running backs from the older era, because those positions just weren't as important, then we can give something to Mel Hine because maybe his position was a little more important in those days. And also the thing to recognize, too, and I don't know exactly when this changed. I want to say sometime in the 60s. I've tried to find this. You couldn't use your hands back then. Yeah, you had to block with like your arms up like this. Like if you watch the 1958 NFL championship game and that's why you see like that familiar blocking pose that sometimes guys still use today with like, you know, where you put your fists together right under your chin. So your elbows are both pointed out on either side. Yeah, you had to block like nowadays you can get even if you're not holding like you can block with your chest, like with your hands into somebody's chest. That was a penalty back then. So think about how hard that is. Um Wellington Mara at one point said that Mel Hine was the best player of the Giants 50 years and that since then he had only really been surpassed by Lawrence Taylor. So it's another one sort of like Vince Lombardi saying that Forrest Gregg was the best football player he ever coached. Wellington Mara, who saw every player from, I don't know, Benny Friedman to Eli Manning saying that Mel Hine was the second best giant of all time. That means a lot. So Mel Hine is, I think, in somewhat of a landslide. He is our starting center. Yes. Um, let's go with offensive tackles next. And the first one here is no uh, is no debate, and that's a Rosie Brown, Hall of Famer, uh, six-time first-team All-Pro, followed that up with uh, three times as a second-team All-Pro, you know, was one of the key players on those late fifties giant teams that went to all those NFL championship games and won the championship in 1956 um, was on the team 53 to 65 first team, all pro 56, 57, 58, 59, 61 and 62. And then for good measure, 60, 63, 65 second team, 1950s, all decade team giants, ring of honor, et cetera, et cetera. 163 games played, clearly the best offensive tackle in New York Giants history. And he was also on the NFL 100th anniversary all-time team, as was Hine. So, yeah, no no question about it. I had a lot of trouble with the second one. So did I. Um, 
it took me a while because the one I saw, I kept going, there's got to be somebody better than that. And then the more I looked, the more I thought about it, I'm like, I guess there wasn't. I ended up going with Jumbo Elliott. Yeah, I did too. I don't. Yeah, I was just, I mean, even if we want to get really sort of modern, the better tackle, the better offensive lineman on the 07 and 11 championship teams were the center and the guards, O'Hare, Snead, Deal. The tackles on the 11 team were Kareem McKenzie and Will Beatty. And then I don't know who was that. McKenzie was there in 07 too, right? Yeah, so in 07, it was him and Deal because Deal played tackle. Okay, it was Rich Seibert. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nine and ten, it was that same offensive line, and then they cut O'Hara and Seibert, and they moved Deal inside, and they started Beatty, and then Beatty got hurt, and they moved Deal back outside, and Booth went in. Yeah, so, and then if you look at the 86 team, the tackles in the 86 team were Brad Benson and Carl Nelson, um, you know, part of the Suburbanites, but, you know, I had to go with Jumbo Elliott. At first, I'm like, oh, is, are these other lists putting him on there because he had like a funny name and a nickname and and at first I'm like ah, you know he's only a pro bowler what the one time in 93 and but, Benson was only one one time also in 86 yeah so I I just I had to go with Jumbo Elliott but I didn't love it yeah I'm just trying to think of who else would even be be considered um let's take a look at just for example I'm gonna pull up the 56 Giants depth chart just to to look the tackles those years were Rosie Brown, obviously. And then a guy named Dick Yelvington was the 50 was a tackle on the 56 team. Yeah. So 58 just to be by 58. It was Rosie Brown and a guy named Frank Uso, who was a rookie. Um, you know, again, I'm not going to go through this year by year, but that's what I ended up with. Um, yeah, and I even thought about trying to maybe find somebody who was a guy who was, you know, a really old guy who was an offensive lineman, but nothing even really popped up too much there. The 2000 team were really old. <laughs> Lomas Brown. <laughs> but those guys were only on the team. Like, the big thing about those guys was they had just gotten imported from elsewhere. Mr. Cohen, whose book I consulted in putting my list together, other than, and he also, other than the, in addition to his top 50, he also then has 25 more to kind of make 17. Mm-hmm. Other than Roosevelt Brown, who's in his top 50, and Jumbo, who makes his last 25, his sort of supplemental 25, he doesn't have another guy who could really be considered an offensive tackle. He's got a couple guys who played offensive tackle, but were better known as defensive tackles. So you wouldn't put, Mel Hyen is a linebacker based on what he did as a center. So you wouldn't put somebody like Arnie Weinmeister on there um, who played some offensive tackle, even though his, you know, he made his stardom as a defensive tackle. So yeah, I was shocked that it was Jumbo Elliott, but it really, I think it's gotta be. And I was surprised that the position was that weak for the giants. All right, so we've agreed on almost everything so far except one wide receiver spot, and we kind of both went in the same direction. Um, offensive guards. Uh, Chris Snead to me is a no-brainer. Agreed. 
11 years with the team. He was on both Super Bowl teams. He was the best offensive lineman on all of those teams. And then for quite a while after that, um, he was a first team all pro in 2008, um, four time pro bowler as a guard, which is not easy. Um, and then, you know, there was the whole, and I'm not putting him on here because of this, but the fact that the guy gets drafted to the team is father-in-law coaches and very quickly dispatches of any sort of awkwardness or accusations of nepotism around that by being a really, really good damn player. Three-time All-Pro, first team in 08, second team in 09 and 10. Um, you know, I, I, I have to... I have to give it to to Snee pretty easily as the best guard in Giants history. And Coughlin was reluctant to take him for that reason. So think about the fact that he almost ended up not on the team and ended up being there for, you know, almost all of Coughlin's coaching career. Coughlin was there a few years after Snee retired. So, yeah, and he was he was the mainstay of those teams. How many guys were were starters on both the 07 and 11 team on the offensive line? I mean, three, three. Okay, so he's one of three. What it was was it was the same offensive line in 07. They bought Pettigrew or they got rid of Pettigrew and they bought McKenzie in. And that was the same offensive line for four years. 07, 08, 09 and 10. It was the same team. It was McKenzie and Snee on one side, on the right side. O'Hara was the center. And then. Uh, Seibert and Deal on the left side. And then going into the 11 season, they cut O'Hara and Seibert. And Kevin Bass, or boss, became the center. That's right. And uh, they moved Deal into guard, and they put Will Beatty in there as the tackle. And then about halfway through the year, he got hurt. So they moved B- uh, Deal back out to tackle. And then they put, um, and then they, they put uh, Kevin Booth in at guard. Um, and that was the lineup for like the playoff run. Um, and that was McKenzie's last year. So the only guys left on the team the next year were Snee and deal. Um, but yeah, no, it's a Snee was, was the rock of that offensive line, even as a guard. Um, coincidentally, you know, the giants are doing a cool series of podcasts right now on the 2011 10 year anniversary. And they did the second episode was the offensive lineman. And they didn't have everybody, but they had three or four guys. Snee wasn't the first guy to do it, but he was the first guy that like I was familiar with to do it on the Giants. He was a guy who retired at the end of the 2013 season. So, you know, late December of 13, early January of 14. He was at training camp the next year, just kind of saying hi. And he lost like 110 pounds. Like he does mm-hmm. not look like the same guy now. Um, you know, and so it was just, again, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it was just kind of an interesting sort of... Um, Sort of, it's a jarring thing to see when you hear this guy talking. You're like, this guy was an offensive guard for ten years in the NFL. Yeah, and you're used to him being this big, huge guy. But I guess that's what they say to these guys now: is um, you basically have like a year to take it off, or you're not going to take it off. So I think they all have like similar. There's like a you know program they can follow now if you're an offensive lineman where. You obviously have to stick with it, but they basically tell these guys like, I know you just retired, and all you probably want to do is relax, but like whatever it's like you have a year to get that weight off or or you just won't so where else did you go with the guards i had to go with william roberts i felt like we went along the same lines as we did with tackle which was 
you know, I couldn't go with anybody from the more modern era. Um, again, they they rotated guards. I, I couldn't go with Cybert and um, you know the the '90s teams. I you know a couple of places I saw kind of cheated and put like Bart Oates as a or Bart Oates as a guard, and I'm like I I can't he wasn't a guard. Um, so I ended up going with William Roberts. He made the Pro Bowl in 1990. You know, there may be somebody from the 50s or something, you know, way back that I'm missing, but that's where I ended up going, although not thrilled about it. And I did go back to the 50s. I went with Jack Stroud, who was with the team from 53 to 64, three-time Pro Bowler. He was on all of those teams in the 50s and 60s that went to the NFL championship game, won an NFL title in 56, um, not going to say second, six times, second time, six times, second team, all pro selection. So I think he's got a little bit more of an impressive resume than Roberts does. Yeah, I would, I would certainly, um, I would certainly agree with you there. I, I will be honest. I didn't see anything, you know, I didn't, there's nothing to go on. Like I'd, I didn't look that closely into those teams from a guard standpoint. So I will not fight you at all on that. Uh, Jack Shroud can be the guy. All right. So let's uh, give our lineup real quick. Eli Manning at quarterback, Frank Gifford, Tiki Barber running back, Del Schaffner, Imani Toomer, wide receivers, Mark Bavaro, tight end. Mel Hine is the center. Chris Snee and Jack Stroud are the, and Roosevelt Brown and Jumbo Elliott are the offensive tackles i feel like the defense is going to be a little stronger real quick just looking here brown hein and gifford we got three wide three hall of famers on the offense and a potential fourth in eli i think we'll have a lot more on the defense yes yeah and the giants are really defensive you know you look at the great errors of the giants the 50s, they had some players on offense, but the defense was the thing. That was the famous defense chant was started at Yankees, or I guess at the polo grounds with the Giants in the 50s. Known more as a basketball champ, but actually started with the Giants in football. Yeah, the 80s teams obviously were one of the best defensive units in the league year in and year out. Even in the, the early 2000 team that went to the 2000 team that went to the Super Bowl was primarily a defensive unit. And you know, the late 2000s teams were probably, the, I'm saying the Coughlin, the two Super Bowl Coughlin teams were probably a 50-50 bag, but there's no doubt that the reason they won those Super Bowls in the postseason and specifically in the Super Bowl was because of the defense. So um, there will be a much richer tapestry on defense. Real quick before we do that, and I'm sure we'll do special teams at the end, I just want to give you my coaching staff real quick. Um, Bill Parcells is my head coach. Vince Lombardi is my offensive coordinator, and Bill Belichick is my defensive coordinator. Tom Landry can take a walk. Yeah, Belichick over, yeah. Yeah. Um, although, for any Cowboys fans, and I send this to my friend about once a year, um, you can look up an article that Tom Landry, after he got fired from the Cowboys in 1988, uh, spent some time in 1989 around the Giants organization, and his uh, widow at the time was quoted as saying, Tom, Tom died a Giants fan. So you can look that up. Tom Landry died a Giants fan and look for that article. So he spent, he just was like around the team. I think he might've been at a game. I, I'd have to look <laughs> details up, 
but but like you know, I mean, he was there a little bit. What I'm saying is, he, you know, I think like he, he yeah. I think he was at maybe the giant cowboy game at the Meadowlands and like in in uh, Wellington Mara's box. I'd, I'd have to look up the details, but um. And you know, one thing you could do: Belichick started as the special teams coach, so you could make Landry the defensive coordinator and Belichick the special teams coach if you wanted to get them all on there. You could have Coughlin, Coughlin as the wide receivers coach. Coughlin could be the wide receivers coach. Yeah, get John Fox in there at some sort of linebacker or somewhere coach. Sean Payton, quarterbacks coach. Oh, yeah, he didn't do a very – his his tenure with the Giants was kind of mercurial. But the Giants have had a lot of great, great assistants over the years that then they've decided to let go to other places and pretty quickly regretted it. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, yes, it's an article from October 31st in the New York Post. Tom Landry died a Giants fan, according to his widow. Treatment of him at, during and after his 1989 firing that spent the rest of his life rooting for Big Blue instead of America's team. So, I don't know what that has to do with anything, but I like to point it out from time to time. Hey, anytime we can say something that makes the Giants look good and the Cowboys look bad, I'm all about it. Yes. Oh, and that's in this same article, his widow was quoted as saying, that's why I watch giant games. I want them to win. So I get involved in watching their games as did Tom. We love the Maras. We live way. We love the family of original Cowboys owner, Clint Murchison after being fired by Jones. Well, it just wasn't the same. <laughs> All right. Why don't we take a look at some defense and right off the bat, I think we have to answer the most important question. Are we running a three, four or four, three here? Here's what I did. As mm-hmm. much as I wanted to go with a 4-3, we are building this offense around the best player. Not that he couldn't be successful in a 4-3, but the way I did, or building this defense, the way I did this was, we have the greatest 3-4 linebacker of all time. Yeah. So we're running a 3-4. We'll figure out how to take the good defensive ends from the 2000s and work them around Lawrence Taylor. Definitely. All right, so... I want to do the linebackers last here. You want to do the linebackers last. All right. So you want why don't run to the secondary first? Yeah, because this is by far the sort of weakest area. Um, mm-hmm. Although I think, again, corner and safety, sort of like guard and tackle. I have one that I feel pretty strongly about. Um, my cornerbacks, I have or my first corner. I have Dick Lynch. Um First team all pro in 1963, second team 1961 um, was obviously the best, you know, secondary, uh, you know, was the, the best corner on those teams. And again, a different era, but that also meant, yeah, you weren't covering as many receive or, you know, you weren't running 30 yards down the field as much covering passes, but you also had to be a really good player against the run. You weren't just out there to, to defend passes. You had to defend the edge in a running game. You had to, you know take big hits and make tackles and wrap up and be the last line of defense. So for me, it was Lynch as the first corner. Did you have Lynch as well? I did have Lynch as one of the cornerbacks and he, he didn't come to the team until what I think it was 59. So he was not on the championship team, but like you said, some really good years in the early sixties shares the giant single season records for most interception return yardage. Yeah, and he was also, I think, maybe worth noting, was a longtime member of the Giants family. He did radio for the Giants all the way through the 2007 season. So he, if you listen to the radio call of Super Bowl 42, he's on the call along with uh, Bob Papa and Carl Banks, who are the two guys who are still doing it to this day. So, yeah, longtime member of the Giants family, very good player. I did have Dick Lynch as one of my cornerbacks. 
Who is your other corner? So I went with a guy who sort of missed the great teams of the 80s by a year or so. I went with Mark Haynes. Okay. Who later went on. Where did he go after that? I think he went to New England after that. No, he was actually he was traded to Denver and played for the played for the Broncos in the couple of Super Bowls in um I think starting he was not even on the Super Bowl team that was he on the Super Bowl team that played against the Giants in 86? Uh yeah, he was it looks like he would have been that would have been his first year with Denver was 86. So he went to Denver in time to play in three of three Super Bowls in four years, got spanked in all of them, but was a giant what six years it says three time all uh two time all pro in 82 and 84 three time pro bowler 82 83 and 84 and there was also a mike haynes from the same era who played cornerback for the patriots and then the raiders who's in the hall of fame that's not who we're talking about we're talking about mark haynes who was in and of himself a very good cornerback played in the league for 10 years made three pro bowls and two all pro selections with the all with the giants was a star of the early 80s defense. Uh, and then, like I said, lost his starting job in 85. I think he was probably, maybe he was injured for part of 85, also only played in five games and then moved on to Denver. And I just want to see what he did. I don't know. I, maybe it might not be. Let me see if I can pull up whether because I don't remember him. And I've watched Super Bowl 21 a bunch of times. I don't remember him in that game. Um, well, but he was in it. So yeah, he played in the Super Bowl with the Broncos against the Giants, and then the following year against Washington, and then two years later against the 49ers. So he had three losing Super Bowl appearances for Haynes in the late 80s. But his best years were with the Giants. Don't know a lot about him, but you do kind of have to feel sorry for the guy that he left the team just before they won their first Super Bowl. And he was on the opposite side of the field as a losing member of the Denver Broncos. Best year was 1984, where he finished with a career-high seven interceptions and was a first-team All-Pro for the second time. Like I said, three-time Pro Bowl, two-time All-Pro, two-time second-team All-Pro, member of the All-Pro Football Reference, uh, second-team All-80s team. So not a guy that a lot of people know a lot about, probably at least in part because there was an even better cornerback who had an almost identical name, who played the same position during the same era. So, but yeah, that was where I went with my second pick was with Mark Haynes. You know, and it's funny, the SNY thing I had here doesn't even have him as an honorable mention. It has Dick, Dick Lynch and Willie Williams as the corners. And then it has honorable mention to Corey Webster and Jason Seahorn. Jason Seahorn one is laughable when you look at just how short his time as a really good player was. I actually went with Webster, but you're absolutely right on Haynes. Um, I'm not arguing that. I just, you know, Webster was the best. I tried to give a little deference to some of these guys who played in the most important defensive game in the history of the Giants. Um, yeah. Seven. But that was, I wasn't thinking about Haynes. I'm, like I said, I'm not arguing at all. Um, I think it's definitely Haynes. All right. Let's go safeties. Yep. Um, to me, it actually is pretty clear. Um, I had Emlyn Tennell and Jimmy Patton. Yes, two stars of the 50s teams that won the NFL title. Tennell, the first black player in the Hall of Fame, one of the greatest defensive players of all time, a nine-time Pro Bowler, four-time All-Pro, 
he was the one guy who really followed and he finishes up his career in 59, 60 and 61 with the Packers and wins one more NFL title in 61 against the giants. The one pat, the one giant who follows Lombardi to the Packers in 59 after Lombardi is hired. Interestingly enough, Lombardi had been the offensive coordinator of the Packers, but the one guy who followed him was a defensive player, Emlyn Tunnell. I think, let me check here. I don't know if Tunnell, he might've even made the, the NFL all 100th year anniversary team. Let me see if I can pull that up real quick. Pointed out Emlyn Tunnell was the first African-American player signed by the Giants. That too. Yeah. First black hall of famer and also the first black player um, on the Giants. His first year with the Giants was what, 48, 48. So if yeah. you think about it, that's not, you know, it's, it's Jackie Robinson's first year with the Dodgers ended in October of 47. And by September of 48, here's Emlyn Tunnell on the Giants. So, and pro football was not reintegrated until 46. So, yeah. so I'm, again, I'm not making a comparison, but just to show you that first, you know, that's a significant thing on top of being a great player to be the first African-American player signed by the Giants. Second most interceptions in NFL history with 79, which is just shocking to think about. Yeah. And you could go well passing, you know, it's kind of like, well, you can grab a lot more rebounds when a lot more shots are missed, but still, you know, you're talking 70 years, 80 years down the line. And again, guys, guys, teams pass so much more now, any record that you have from back then, Unless it's something that clearly doesn't seem right, like you know, oh, a guy hit seventy-five home runs in ten games in nineteen, you know, in eighteen. <laughs> it's like, all right, it's not the same sport, but with this, it certainly, you know, that's a number that that holds up. And Tanell was on the NFL fiftieth anniversary all-time team. He was not on the seventy-fifth anniversary team, but then he made it back on to the hundredth anniversary team. So yeah, he is a he is an all-time great player, and. In addition to being a pioneer as the first black player on the Giants. So he was definitely number one for me. No question about it. All right. So we pretty much uh, the se- secondary. We had Dick Lynch, uh, Mark Haynes, Emlyn Tunnell, Jimmy Patton. Yeah, we should probably just say a few kind of quick words about Patton just to kind of give an idea of what his career was all about. He was a contemporary of Tunnell. He played with the Giants from... 1955 to 1966 so he came along much later but then stayed with the team through those teams in 61 62 and 63 that made made and lost in the nfl championship game in 58 he led the nfl with 11 interceptions five-time first team all pro five-time pro bowl selection and the first nfl player ever to return both a kickoff and a punt for a td in the same game Patton second all time in the Giants with 52 career interceptions and holds the record for the most interceptions in a season on the Giants with 11 in that great 1958 season. So, yeah, secondary of Haynes, Lynch, Tunnell and Patton. Up front. Let's go up front. And again, we're in this three, four. Um, so I will go with the middle first, the nose tackle, defensive tackle, whatever you want to call it. I went with Rosie Greer. Uh, three-time All-Pro, 56, 58, 59. All three years, the Giants are in the NFL championship game, winning it in 56. Um, you know, was technically, I guess, a defensive tackle in defense, but I'm going to call him a nose tackle here and make him my man in the middle for this team. 
That's a good selection. I actually had Jim Kitkavich, who was a contemporary of Greer's, but your argument for Greer is a good one. So I think I, I would definitely defer to you and go with go with Greer. And did you only have one guy in the middle too? Correct. Correct. Yeah, if we were running like a four three, I think you'd probably make the argument for both of them. I didn't consider it that way, but you know, Kitkavich obviously a really good player. Um, he was also a three-time first-team All-Pro a little bit later. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think Greer probably just noses him out. Noses him out for the nose guard position. Did, the pun wasn't intended, but I'm also not sad about it. <laughs> Greer also was present when Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated, along with Rayford Johnson, who was the Olympian, Olympic hero for the United States in track, who we just mentioned, who just passed away last year, and we talked about it ostensibly in our in memoriam episode of last year. Rosie Greer was the other sort of famous athlete who was a Bobby Kennedy bodyguard who was present that day. So a guy who led a very long and interesting life in Rosie Greer. And we also not that this was factored in, but in 1963 goes out to the L.A. Rams and is part of the fearsome foursome. Yeah, it's sort of the original fearsome foursome. Deacon Jones, Merlin Olson, and Lamar Lundy. So, um, you know, again, didn't factor that in here, but certainly a full football career before a full career after football. Defensive ends, um, and again, this is where it gets a little bit weird because you look at a lot of 4-3 defensive ends and you wonder, you know, how much does it apply to a 3-4? I had to go with Michael Strahan. Oh, yeah. He's a Hall of Famer. Still the single-season sack record, which I understand is controversial, but even if you take that sack away, he's 21-and-a-half sacks, which would be the second, you know, second-leading single-season sack record of all time post-1982. Was a four-time first-team All-Pro, two-time second-team All-Pro. Um, was the anchor of the Giants' defense in the biggest game they ever played. Clearly the, you know, one of the defensive ends, even though the, even if the, Scheme is not exactly what you would draw up for a guy like that. Just too good to, that's not a good enough reason to not have Michael Strahan as, as one of the defensive ends. Agreed. And why don't we uh, name our second defensive end real quick as well? So I went with the same era and I went with Justin Tuck. Um, a little closer with him and OC. And this is one where I did factor in the style uh, OC Uminiora is not a 3-4 defensive end. Again, if there wasn't a guy like Tuck, I would probably have taken. I wouldn't totally disqualify OC for that. You know, I understand there's some guys you want to talk about Leonard Marshall being a more traditional 3-4 defensive end. But I look at Justin Tuck. Um, he was probably the actual MVP of both of those Super Bowls. Uh, if if you looked at it totally objectively and they didn't try to give to the quarterback at every opportunity. Um, he was also, to me, his most impressive thing was that in 2008, he was an All-Pro, and that was a year that Michael Strahan had retired and OCU Minora got hurt in the preseason. So any argument that he was just, and I mean, it, it was since dispensed with anyway, but any argument that he was just a product of having all those guys around him, that was done away with that year and then for years after that he was the leader of that team he was the captain of the defense even as his skills started to decline um so i went with tuck but i'm willing to hear other arguments there yeah i am going to push back i went with andy robustelli okay 
maybe probably one of the two greatest, uh, although we talked about Tanel too, but you know, along with Sam Huff, probably, uh, you know, one of the two or three best players on those great teams of the 1950s, five-time Pro Bowl, four-time first-team All-Pro, um, wins the Burt Bell Award in 1962, although, you know, that wasn't the official MVP award. He was the NFL Player of the Year in 62, Hall of Famer, NFL Champion in 56. I feel pretty strongly about Robustelli. None of those other guys you mentioned are Hall of Famers or will be Hall of Famers, whereas Robustelli is. I know it's a different era and a little bit of a different defense, like you mentioned, but given his Hall of Fame status and the fact that he's one of the all-time giant greats and won a championship, played in all those NFL title games, I would push pretty strongly for Robustelli. What is that? He was in charge of the team in the mid-70s. Oh, fair point, fair point. Well, he will not be part of that coaching staff and or front office that we discussed a few minutes ago, but I would push pretty hard for Robustelli. All right, we'll go with him then. So our defensive line would be Andy Robustelli, Rosie Greer, Michael Strahan. Yes, absolutely. All right, so you talked me into Rosie Greer, and I talked you into Strahan. We were in locks. Strahan. I'm sorry. I, I talked you into Robustelli, not Strahan. No, Strahan didn't need any persuasion. And we were in lockstep on the defensive backs. So let's go linebackers. Uh, and I got three Hall of Famers on my list. I don't know if you do either. I mean, I guess we could probably knock out outside linebacker. I mean, obviously, you know, Taylor, best, you know. Let's, let's do it like this. Lawrence Taylor is, is my first outside linebacker. That's why I... Um, He's why I went us went with them having a three four because he's a three four linebacker and he's the best player and you build your defense around him. I guess it would be kind of overkill to give his superlatives, but just so we do it. MVP of the NFL in 1986, three time Defensive Player of the Year. Um, he was the reason that the eight times the first team uh, first team All Pro for eight years. He's the reason the NFL started counting sacks in 1982. I don't know where you rank him as the greatest defensive player of all time. If you have him outside your top three or four, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and was, you know, more than anyone single-handedly turned the Giants from a perennial laughingstock into the franchise they became. The Athletic just did something. I don't know if you saw this. They did a sort of a countdown leading up to the opening night of the league, opening night of the season. They did this. They'd done it for baseball about a year ago, and they did it, just did it for the NFL, where they did the top 100 NFL players in history. And it's it's a little different than the like the NFL 100 team because there's no regard to position, so you can have as many quarterbacks or whatever as you want. And they ranked Taylor fourth all time behind Brady, Jim Brown, Jerry Rice and Lawrence Taylor. That's a <clears throat> that's a debate for another day. But I think sometimes, and we've talked about this before, even way back on our first episode when we did the Mount Rushmores. You, I think sometimes for whatever reason, maybe it's because he was on defense or whatever. But Lawrence Taylor almost gets underrated as far as some of the greatest football players of all time or the greatest New York athletes of all time. He is, in my opinion, definitely the best defensive player of all time. He's probably second to Babe Ruth and the best New York athlete of all time as far as career played in New York. So, yeah, 
I mean, the idea that he wouldn't be one of our two outs starting outside linebackers is a little crazy. And yeah, he's he's on the team. He's the captain of the defense. He's the leader of the team. And he just goes out there like a bunch of crazed dogs and has some fun. So I was going to say that was also another reason I decided to go with Belichick as the defensive coordinator. I don't know that Tom Landry would have. I don't know that Tom Landry would have loved uh, Lawrence Taylor golfing during practice. And yeah. that's the one thing I will always say, and we'll, we'll, we'll go move on. People love to talk about, you know, they love to show the clips of Parcells yelling at Phil Sims and getting in guys' faces. If you went to training camp at, I think it was either Fairleigh Dickinson or William Patterson during LT's career, what you would see most of the time was Lawrence Taylor putting on the sidelines um, Lawrence Taylor could do whatever he wanted because he was Lawrence Taylor. Um, Absolutely. Let's go to the middle next, the inside linebackers, and come back to the second outside linebacker if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. So, so go ahead. I this was pretty easy to me. I had two Hall of Famers. I had Sam Huff and I had Harry Carson. Absolutely. Yep. Um, Carson, first team All Pro, eighty one, eighty four. Second team All Pro in 78, 82, 85, and 86. So six times an All Pro was with the team and a very good player, sort of, you know, during the Giants being bad. Uh, you know, he was on the team in those late 70s. He was on the team for the Miracle at the Meadowlands and then the early Ray Perkins years and, you know, all of that. Um, and was able to hang on and get that ring in 86 um, while he still was a really contributing player and you know for that three four style defense with the outside linebackers especially lt kind of having free reign to attack the quarterback you needed somebody solid in the middle and he was the one who was there to stuff the run and was there to and not and that doesn't just mean guys running right at him it means having to get to this you know outside the tackle box to make tackles and and guard some of those tight ends coming across the middle so just a phenomenal player and for anybody who thinks some of these guys are just products of being on the same defense as Lawrence Taylor look at what Harry Carson did those first few years on horrendous Giants teams finally made it into the Hall of Fame after many failed attempts I think he made it in in like 2005 2006 thereabouts Super Bowl 21 when the Giants are in their first Super Bowl they go to play the Broncos and it's time for the coin toss and the Broncos send out their, you know, their four or five captains, whatever it is, Elway and whoever else. And Parcells sends just Harry Carson out to call the coin toss. And it kind of sends a message that this is the guy who's the heart and soul of our team. So absolutely. And then Sam Huff, um, one of the great linebackers of all time, a guy who kind of crosses over into the popular mind in the 1950s and 60s. In 1959, CBS airs a documentary called The Violent World of Sam Huff, which is narrated by Walter Cronkite and features uh, Sam Huff mic'd up for a game. He was well-known. I think it was the 1961 or one of the championship games they played against the Packers. He bit Jim, bit Jim Taylor through, uh, you know, through the helmets. So a violent player, a guy who kind of, personified the crazy middle linebacker of the era, along with guys like Nitschke and Butkus. So the one sort of sad thing about Huff is he kind of spent a lot of time estranged from the Giants after he left the team because he had been promised that he would never be traded and then ended up being. And then he 
he goes to Washington, finishes out his career with Washington, and then is part of the Redskins franchise for the rest of his life. One thing I didn't realize, and I don't know if you knew this, Huff is well known as the red one of these Redskin uh, color commentators on the radio for all these years. You know, he actually, right after he retired, spent three years as a Giants radio broadcaster. No, I had no idea of that. Uh, and when I saw that, it surprised me because you kind of have this idea that he was estranged from the team mm-hmm. from the minute he got traded for the rest of his life because he finished up his career in Washington and then was a broadcaster with Washington for, you know, 40 years, 30 years, you know, whatever it was. But he actually had a couple of years where he was kind of back in the Giants fold as a radio broadcaster. But it's obvious that he thought of himself as a Redskin throughout the rest of his life, even though his best years were with the Giants. That was when where he made his all pro teams. That was when he made most of his pro bowls. That was, you know, where he won his championship. So despite what came later, Sam Huff, you know, next to Taylor, probably the greatest linebacker in Giants history. Yep. And the quote was, as long as I live, I will never forgive Ali Sherman for trading me. Um, And I think to some people of that generation, that was uh, kind of the original sin of, you know, they traded him and things went downhill. And obviously there was a lot of reasons for that. But, you know, it's one thing to trade a guy. It's another thing to have that guy go right down the uh, right down the highway and be the one of the faces first as a player and then as a broadcaster for one of your biggest rivals for 50 years after that. It's kind of like the Mets trading Tom Seaver, you know, it's just like you're trading him. Yeah. I understand trading all these other guys, but you're trading him. So yeah, Sam Huff, one of the all time greats and a, a deserved linebacker inside linebacker, along with Harry Carson on the giants. So just to count up, we have uh, Strahan, Robustelli, Taylor, Huff, Carson, and Tanel, all Hall of Famers. So I think that's uh, five, six, five Hall of Famers so far. One, two, three, four, five, six Hall of Famers so far. I don't think our next guy is going to be a Hall of Famer. Who did you go with at outside linebacker? I will be honest. I surprised myself. I thought I was going to go with Carl Banks. And I was like, oh, I would imagine this is going to be Carl Banks. And I'm looking and I'm like, yep. And I do think Banks's career gets diminished a little bit uh, due to people just thinking, well, obviously he made all these plays because they weren't going anywhere near Lawrence Taylor, which is probably got some validity, but it's probably not totally fair. The more I looked, I had to go with Jesse Armstead. Me too. Jesse Armstead is a, was on the team for nine years. He was a, Five straight Pro Bowls from 97 to 01. He was a three-time All-Pro in 97, 99, 2000. He was still very much the leader of that defense, along with Strayan, but Armstead was more the vocal leader of that team that went to the 2000 Super Bowl. I surprised myself and, and ended up going, you know what, I think I have to go. And I also, this wasn't the reason I did it, but I think it's also important to have somebody from that era on that. I mean, Obviously, Tiki as well, but um, yeah, I, I Armstead edged out Banks. I, I was surprised. The Giants were not winning that Super Bowl against Baltimore in Super Bowl 35 in the 2000 season, but Armstead has a 43-yard interception return for a touchdown that would have tied that game in the second quarter, and it gets called back for a defensive holding penalty. So 
he has what could have been one of the biggest plays of that Super Bowl. Again, they probably lose anyway, but nonetheless, you know, you have to ask yourself what could have been. Yeah, I went with Armstead. Really, really the only thing that Banks has that Armstead doesn't have was the winning. And I, even just a few weeks ago when they announced they were retiring Strahan's number and they sent people out to the, you know, to the, what is the show? Is it It's not the Today Show that Strahan co-hosts, is it? Is he Good Morning America? It might be Good Morning America. They, the three guys that came out to let him know about that were Eli, Tuck, and Armstead. And, you know, you don't think of Armstead maybe in the same breath as those other guys, but he was a really important defensive player. Another guy who kind of, along with Strahan, sort of bridged the gap. His first year was 1993. He was, a you know, played linebacker alongside Lawrence Taylor for a year and, by the end in 01, he was playing with a lot of, you know, with at least with some guys who would be there throughout the Coughlin or for some of the Coughlin playoff run. So, yeah, I absolutely I was with Armstead also. So um, why don't I read through our defense here real quick? Uh, up front, we have Michael Strahan, o- Andy Robustelli and Rosie Greer. Linebacking cord, Lawrence Taylor, Jesse Armstead, Sam Huff, Harry Carson. And the backfield, the defensive backfield, Mark Haynes, Lynch. Emlyn Tunnell and Jimmy Patton. And it's a pretty good team. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that, that front seven, especially, although the secondary is not uh, much to shake a stick at, but you know, I, I, I will line up Michael Strahan and, and, and Lawrence Taylor on opposite sides and just say, all right, go get them. <laughs> yeah. Or you could do what the giants did with Taylor and Marshall in the eighties and put them both on the same side because the the logic went that they weren't going to devote four blockers to blocking two guys on the same side. So very possibly as well. Um, so I guess that just leaves some special teams and I don't think we need to belabor this, but I went with, um, I won't give you names. You said I put a kicker, a punter, a long snapper, just because of how easy that's going to be. And then a return man. I didn't differentiate between kickers and punt kick returner and punt returner. No. And I guess the, the giants, I mean, there aren't that many of these guys, the Giants never had like a special teams guy other than one year of Renee Thompson in 1990. You know who their really good special teams guy was in the mid 2000s was David Tyree. David That's Tyree true. Pro Bowler as a at Pro Bowl as a special teams guy, but I, I didn't I didn't miss oh. a special teams guy. A special teams guy's got to be an eat a worm type guy. <laughs> <laughs> that is a quote from the 90 Giants video yearbook. I'm gonna say let's put Tyree on as our special teams guy because you know. He, his place in Giants lore, and if he made a Pro Bowl uh, as a special teams, let's put him on as our special teams specialist. So, all right, I'm guessing your long snapper was Zach Diossi, who was on the team for about 23 years. Yeah, Zach Diossi was there 2007 to 2009. He was a two-time Pro Bowler. 2007 to 2019. Excuse me. Two-time Pro Bowler, having essentially never played uh any defense at all. They gave up on him being a linebacker a long time ago. Um, so I put him on there. Um, Son of another former giant linebacker, Steve Diossi was with the Giants in 1990. And may have been a long snapper as well. He was. Um, he was. Return man, I went with Dave Meggett. Um, he was a very, very good return man for the Giants in the late 80s. Um, you know, was also a, a decent sort of scat back, third down back. Um, has spent a lot of his post-playing career in prison, but still he was a two-time Pro Bowler 
uh, three-time All-Pro, well, twice with the Giants, three, two-time All-Pro with the Giants in 89 and 90, including that Super Bowl 25 team. He was sort of the quintessential Parcells guy. He was with the Giants and then was with the Patriots under Parcells and then followed him to the Jets in 98. Um, so if we're going to go with a return man, uh, I will, uh, I will go with Dave Meggett. Nobody else really popped out. They've sort of, you know, they've, they've mixed a few other guys in, in the, in the past couple of 20 years or whatever. Certainly Ron Dixon made a huge play in the playoffs that year, but got to go with Meggett. And the other thing about Meggett was he was a tiny guy. He was five, seven, 190 pounds. So he wasn't the type of player that you saw out there on an NFL field all that often. So that was kind of cool too. Yep. Kicker, you know, there was a few different ways I could have looked at this. For a while, I was like, do I go with Pete Gogolak just from being a, you know, soccer style kicker and being important to the the history of the league with sort of starting a a little bit of a war between the two leagues and, and, you know, ultimately end up leading to a merger. I ultimately went with Lawrence Tynes just by virtue of, you know, the guy hit the guy kicked them into the Super Bowl twice, including once in one of the most difficult kicks you'll ever see uh, against the Packers in the 07 NFC Championship game. And that was the um, game that was in the freezing, freezing cold weather. And even the next year, or even four years later, that was more about the hold. It was a you know it was a shorter field goal, but it was a bad snap, and Weatherford got a good hold down, and it was a good kicker for them. He hit a lot of game-winning field goals. There's a few, you know, there was two different kickers in the 86 and 90 teams. And, you know, Pat Summerall would have been too cute by half. So I, I went with Tynes. You didn't want to do the John Madden thing and name Pat Summerall as the kicker, even though he hadn't played in 30 years like he would every year for his all Madden team. I decided not to do that. Yeah, I, I tend to be with you. Um Probably the best game ever by a kicker for the Giants is Barr in 1990 uh, against the Niners in the NFC title game where he kicked five field goals, and that was their only points. But you're right. Tynes was with the Giants for longer and probably on balance had more big kicks. Yeah. So that that's why I went with him. Um, punter, I had originally written down Dave Jennings just because you hear all these stories over the years of how he was on such bad teams that he was their biggest offensive weapon. And I had written him down. And then you look, you know, I looked at Jeff Fiegels who was on the giants towards the end of his career and had some really good years with the giants. And, you know, was a big part of them winning that first super bowl in 07. But as I looked at it, I'm like, Sean Landetta was there for eight and a half years. He was a, uh, won a couple of all pros with the giants, um, was the punter for both Super Bowls. Easy to overlook just how important he was in the 86 NFC Championship game with that swirling wind where he was able to punt the ball effectively through the wind and the Washington punter just basically kept punting the ball straight up in the air. And he redeemed himself from the year before when against Chicago in the cold weather, he had miffed on a punt in a deep in his, I think he was actually in his own end zone. So yeah, they would have yeah. lost him 14 to nothing if it wasn't for that. But uh, yeah. No, I, I I would go I would go Landetta too. Mm -hmm. No, but maybe if Fiegels had been around for a little longer. Yeah, I gave him some thought. Um, but yeah, I think ultimately Landetta was there a long time. And he was all pro in both of their Super Bowl winning seasons, which I know the punter's not the most important guy on the team, but 
to me, that does kind of say something. He's a, he's on the all um, decade team at the hall, the hall of fame, the pro football hall of fame. It's a cool thing they do. They do an all decade team. They've done them every year, every decade, going back to the 1920s. Landette is the punter for both the eighties and the nineties teams. So he's got to be the only guy who can say he's a you know punter for two different decades. So yeah, it's Landetta. Even though, and then we can also talk about his return to the giants. We talked about that in our Super Bowl 25 episode. What year was that? Six. So just real quick, I'll go over this. He leaves the, the he gets cut in 93, goes to the Rams, is there for a few years. Then he's with the Bucks. He's with the Packers. He's with the Eagles for four years. He's with the Rams, the Eagles again. And then in 06, and he didn't dress, but there was a week where Fiegels was hurt. He had gotten hit the week before and he was questionable all week. So they had to sign a punter. So they signed Sean Landetta. He was 44. By the time Sunday rolled around, Fiegels was okay. So Fiegels played and Landetta was inactive. And then they just cut him the next day because you're not going to carry two punters. But um, Sean Landetta was technically back on the Giants in 2006. Yeah. So the Giants that, that week had two punters over the age of 40 on their roster. All right, so this was good. Let me just go through it again real quick, just so everybody knows. Our offense, quarterback Eli Manning, running backs Frank Gifford, Tiki Barber, wide receivers Del Schaffner, Armani Toomer, Mark Bavaro is the tight end, center Mel Hine, guards are Chris Snee and Jack Stroud, tackles are Roosevelt Brown and Jumbo Elliott, our special teams, kicker Lawrence Tynes, punter Sean Landetta, returner Dave Meggett, Long snapper is Zach Diasi, and our special teams specialist, our gunner, is David Tyree. And the defense, a very, very solid unit. Defensive ends, Michael Strahan and Andy Robustelli. Uh, the defensive tackle is Rosie Greer. Linebackers outside, Lawrence Taylor and Jesse Armstead. Insta- inside, Sam Huff, Harry Carson. Cornerbacks are Mark Haynes and Dick Lynch, and our centers are our safeties are Emlyn Tunnell and Jimmy Patton. Pretty good team. Yep, and I think it goes without saying that the venue for this team will be the Giants' most famous venue of all time, the Yale Bowl, <laughs> which just reeks of um, half at the Yale Bowl and half at Shea Stadium. Just evokes imagery of Giants football in the New York metropolitan area. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I like where we ended up. A lot of agreement, but a couple of different, uh, couple of differences of opinion. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, this was a lot of fun. We had not done a football-specific episode in quite some time, but with uh, weather getting cooler and with football season coming down the pike, we figured it would be a good time to do it. So we'd like to thank you as always for joining us. And until next time, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already... We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. 
We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.